So we know that there's an impending climate catastrophe and we know that there needs to be some extreme action, some kind of extreme reorientation of global production so that we can actually meet the challenge and try to keep the temperature below you know, two degrees or 1.5 degrees Celsius or whatever it is. But we also know that the main mechanisms that are being adopted for this, namely carbon pricing and carbon trading, have not yet worked in order to lower carbon emissions, which continue to rise overall. And even the jurisdictions that are reducing their emissions are probably not on their way to meeting the targets that we've spoken about. So maybe... As Dr. Kate Irvin said, the weakness of carbon pricing and carbon trading is actually by design. It's the easiest way for political and economic elites to engage with this issue. But what about alternatives? What kinds of other things are on offer? So one of the things we have not discussed so far is the idea of a political spectrum, how there are different kinds of political ideologies which can influence both the analysis of a problem and the kinds of solutions that are pursued. One concern comes from what we can call progressives. These are people who have a political ideology that wants to address inequality and achieve greater redistribution. That could be of wealth, of income, of other kinds of resources. They want to achieve greater equality, less discrimination, whether that's discrimination between class or races or genders, so on and so forth. Progressives are often associated with or allied with the left wing of the political spectrum. And then you have the status quo, kind of the mainstream, which is defined by a centrist or liberal orientation and a more right wing or conservative orientation. Both the liberals and the conservatives tend to agree on the basic ideas of the economy. Actually, a lot of progressives do as well. But certainly for liberals and conservatives, preserving economic hierarchies and systems is important, even though they may disagree on the best way to preserve those economic systems or the role of social programs that might involve some redistribution of the masses. Liberals and conservatives often also disagree on maintaining or disrupting traditional gender roles or other forms of differences in societies. Now, you can imagine that carbon markets are very much a liberal approach, and they're also appreciated by many conservatives because they don't rock the economic system. But carbon trading is not necessarily a very effective measure. And in response to this, progressives, especially in the United States, but also elsewhere, have put forward different ideas about addressing climate change. Most famously in the United States, there's the idea of the Green New Deal, which is about investing in new technologies and a construction program to try and reduce emissions at the same time as employing millions of Americans who might currently find themselves in poverty or in poor jobs. Now, this might seem good on its own, and it does have many good aspects, but it's important for people in the global south to remember that the majority of emissions historically, and even today, continue to come from global north countries. And as we've discussed with multiple guests, production is globalized, there are deep linkages between the north and south, and the kinds of approaches that people in the north pursue have impacts on those of us in the south, both in terms of the ideas we use to think of our own problems, and of course the very real material implications on our economies and ecologies. So what kinds of solutions are progressives in the global north offering? And what are their limits? Who pays for the costs of dealing with climate change? What kinds of alternatives can we think about, especially those of us in the global south, given our problems of underdevelopment? And what kinds of knowledges and resources can be drawn upon 
to think these things through. Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we discuss the interrelations of politics and economics, and also talk about how political economy can encompass a lot more than just politics and economics. We invite guests with different approaches and perspectives to discuss these kinds of questions. I'm your host, Numan Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To discuss alternatives to the current ways of doing things, I've invited Dr. Max Eil, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Wageningen University in the Netherlands, or Holland. And he's also an associated researcher with the Observatory for Food Sovereignty and Environment in Tunisia. He's also author of a forthcoming book, A People's Green New Deal. Let's hear from Dr. Isle. I carry out three intertwined strands of research, which all, in their essence, focus on the role of smallholder production in uh, the current world and then the transition to what could be a better world. The first strand is my doctoral research, which focused on the role of pastoralists and peasants in the national liberation struggle, which was violent in Tunisia, and uh, how they were excluded during the course of post-colonial planning. And the second strand of research looks at heterodox ideas of what development could have been in Tunisia from the 1960s uh, to the 1980s and looked at uh, ways that people proposed to actually have a whole different developmental pattern. And the third strand of research is similarly looking at what kind of Green New Deal would be appropriate for uh, the entire world, including uh, most centrally the poorest people in the world who are predominantly uh, or disproportionately, but of course not only people in the countryside. Okay, so this uh, Green New Deal stuff, I think, is some of what we will be discussing today. So can you tell us a little bit about what got you into this kind of research and what motivates you about it? So I've been interested in ecological questions since I was a child uh, and since I was just interested in agriculture and in uh, the environment and more from a kind of uh, interest in wildlife and this type of uh, preoccupation. Um, and then I was also interested in, uh, in developmental planning and I, I also used to do climate writing uh, for, for a number of years. And so it's, it's long been a preoccupation and it, uh, it became very urgent, I think, starting in 2018 when this idea of the Green New Deal in many ways became a kind of a point where a lot of issues that people are debating uh, in the North, in the South, uh, in the public sphere, um, uh, on the left in the world, kind of concentrate uh, and cross cut and intersect one another in the debate about the Green New Deal. And it, it, I realized that it was extremely important to get a sense of what that debate was, what other uh, positions and perspectives were possibly being silenced or censored or suppressed, and what could be done to push that debate in, especially in the West, in a way that would uh, more adequately include the needs of the majority world. So if 
I am understanding it correctly, the Green New Deal is actually a concept or a kind of political program that comes out in the United States of America. Can you just tell us a little bit about this? Absolutely. So the, the Green New Deal uh, emerged uh, originally in the, in the mid-2000s, but in a sense, that de- that's a, a historical debate. But it emerged kind of as a political force. First, uh, the U.S. Green Party, which is a very uh, left-wing, progressive political party in the United States, put forward uh, uh, has been putting forward for years a very nice idea of a Green New Deal based on uh, totally eliminating pollution, playing, uh, totally eliminating carbon emissions on a very short time scale, demilitarization, anti-imperialism, uh, carbon debt, uh, uh, sustainable agriculture in the United States. That uh, idea kind of was, depending on how one sees it, either mainstreamed or co-opted in 2018 when a very different Green New Deal was put forward by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was a freshly elected congressperson representing, uh, who was put forward by these kind of, you know, left liberal, you can say, um, slightly economic populist uh, people or groupings in the U.S. called the, the Justice Dems. And this may run against the grain of what uh, some people uh, think about or how a lot of people frame Ocasio-Cortez and, and, and the Justice Dems. And uh, or the, this kind of new left in the U.S. And so I think it's a little important to just put that very briefly in perspective. And I think one, uh, maybe two aspects are, that can really help us think about just how left is that new left on a world scale. I mean, one, one aspect is that they're putting forward uh, a minimum wage of $15 an hour. Now, $15 an hour works out to, um, you know, around... Uh, uh, $26,000 a year in the U.S., which is uh, grinding poverty. I mean, life is extremely difficult, and there's large portions of the U.S. you would not even, you just can't even live on $26,000 a year. So this is actually the, you know, this is represented as a very populist or left-wing uh, current, but what they're presenting for the people of the U.S. is really not a good option, even for the people of the U.S. If we go abroad, they, they don't take seriously the idea, just the simple idea that the U.S., should categorically abstain from intervening in the affairs of other countries, which is a very minimal um, anti-imperialist position. And that is not part of the program of most of the justice Dems, even though on certain issues, um, some of them will, will be much better. So we've got this idea in the United States that there's a new um, kind of wave of progressive thought. But what you're saying is that that progressive thought has very serious limitations, both within the United States and outside of it. Yeah, absolutely. The wider current of, of leftist thought is, is, is very interesting in the US, but the way it has uh, manifested or appeared or gotten uh, political representatives in the US Congress, this is a much more uh, politically limited affair. It's important to keep that in mind. So one of the things that you've been doing quite prominently you're writing a book about it, is to critique what I think is a concept called eco-modernism, which maybe is part of the Green New Deal as you see it, and or maybe it's not, you can tell us better. But can you tell us what is eco-modernism? I understand that it has both capitalist variants and more progressive or socialist variants. And uh, maybe if, if uh, I know you, you critique it, but if you could give us kind of the uh, the best representation of eco-modernism, what would that be? 
So eco-modernism makes the claim that technology or meaning any specific uh, technological device is totally socially neutral. And not only that, but that uh, something like climate change, for example, is primarily a technological problem rather than a problem where technology and things like social power intersect to produce the problem. The critique of that is to say that in the history of uh, civilization, or if we want to use this kind of uh, this word, um, which just could be problematic, um, technologies generally have not been socially neutral uh, because they are selected by somebody with social power. So take one example that eco-modernists are generally proposing for, consider that right now, for example, and I'm not sure you're, everyone will know this, that uh, we are very close to being over the what's called the carbon budget or the amount of carbon that it is uh, possible to emit into the atmosphere without having a certain risk of going over uh, a certain a certain temperature. So we're about to go over, we're, we're maybe a couple years, uh, if, if we haven't already, exceeded the carbon budget that will allow us to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's an example. So there's different kinds of social and technological ways of addressing that problem right? Because everyone agrees that that is a problem, more or less, um, except at the extremes. One, uh, you know, everyone basically agrees that you need to shift sooner or later away from, uh, from carbon emitting forms of energy, like coal and oil. Uh, what people debate is something, for example, like, what are you going to do with all the excess carbon in the atmosphere, Right. So there's two kinds of proposals. The eco-modernists, for example, will be very aggressive in stating, yes, we're going to solve that with carbon capture and storage, uh, which is basically speculative technology that uh, does exactly what it says. It captures carbon from the atmosphere, kind of like a huge vacuum cleaner, except like 30,000 huge vacuum cleaners. It sucks in the carbon. It uh, pumps it underground or it turns it into these huge glass blocks and so forth. Sure, it sounds like a fantastic idea, except once you actually research the issue, you would know very quickly, uh, and it's even something that is uh, confessed by uh, financial consultancy groups, that first of all, carbon capture and storage basically is only used to pump uh, captured carbon into oil wells to enhance the uh, amount of oil that can be extracted. That's on the one hand. So the only carbon capture and storage that's actually in use is being used literally by the oil companies, which should make you think, why exactly, why are we discussing carbon capture and storage, right? The other, um, well, then there's people who have done kind of modeling exercises, how much uh, energy, how much raw material would you use uh, for carbon capture and storage. I mean, some estimates are that you would use between 20 and 40 or 50 percent of all the energy currently used by humanity to, uh, uh, to, uh, to pull carbon, out, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere over a period of 40 or 50 years. So it's, once one has looked into this, right, 
it's very clear that it's not at all feasible now. So the question is, why are people proposing it? Well, what they say is, they say, actually, no, we need to invest in this technology because it is going to be the best way to deal with the excess amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's their basic proposal, right? Um, and you find this not only uh, on the kind of climate uh, liberals, but also uh, amongst people who call themselves Marxists, like uh, the economic, uh, economic ecological journalist Christian Parenti has strongly advocated for carbon capture and storage. Uh, that's an example. Now, there are ways to do carbon capture and storage, in fact, and we know exactly how it works. Uh, whenever you plant a tree, you're doing carbon capture and storage. Whenever you uh, kind of revivify or restore um, a degraded grassland or just a degraded dirt field and you cover it with uh, whatever used to grow there 100 or 200 or 300 years ago, um, and you are going to pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, first you're going to pull it into the plant itself, because that's what plants do. They convert carbon dioxide into, uh, into cellulose, into woody matter, into leafy matter, and so forth. Second, eventually it's going to make its way into the soil, because the soil and the soil uh, uh, carbon content, the, the percentage of the soil that is made up of carbon will increase. And this is very well uh, founded. Um, ex experimentally, it's very well founded in uh, most of the social science. Um, and it's also pretty well founded that the types of uh, land management can and very much include farming, but they have to be types of farming that don't use uh, fertilizer, uh, chemical fertilizers that um, have, are polycultures, which means you plant a lot of different crops in, in one field. Um, and there are types of farming that uh, encourage biodiversity and so forth. And these types of farming will allow farms, small farms especially, that are more labor intensive, to be more profitable, to produce more with fewer inputs. So it's basically increasing their wages of small farmers and at the same time pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Now, we also don't know how effective that can be. That isn't because we think we aren't sure it can work. Instead, what we aren't sure about is the degree of effectiveness. So it could be that that's going to pull something like 10% um, of, say, current United States emissions could be uh, pulled from the atmosphere using soil on the United States landmass. That's just that's one example that comes to mind because it's uh, that I know very well. That's an example. This is these are it's very speculative. Um, it's speculative because there isn't a lot of uh, research going into it. Why isn't there a lot of research going into this, um, into this technology, right? Because it is a technology. This is something that's uh, sidestepped. Is that agriculture is also a technology, right? The reason, the reason that there isn't a lot of investment going into this specific form of uh, technology is because it only benefits poor people. And there's no very little way, it seems, for corporations to get benefit from it. It's certainly possible. And if it takes off, they'll certainly try. But 
in general, this type of technology is de decentralized. It relies on the knowledge of poor uh, working people who are the best managers of their own land. Uh, it makes their land more valuable. It relies on them being willing to invest labor in that land, which usually means that they would want to own the land, which usually means that you would want to carry out an agrarian reform before doing this specific type of uh, development intervention. So there's a reason, right, that one technology is chosen over another, even though if we think about rational ecological criteria, right, if we can use this phrase, it seems that what's rational for people uh, for for development institutions, for the FAO, for you know, for anyone even objectively concerned about the ecology, it seems rational to invest in organic or plant-based or soil-based carbon drawdown and not this speculative technology. But in fact, they're not doing it, right? Um, and so this is an example that should make us think, okay, well, no, it does technology isn't really socially neutral. Like it matters which technology we use and we should wonder why some people are demanding we use one technology and other people are demanding we use other technologies. And we should think about critically about what technologies are, are uh, plopped in front of us, are uh, placed in front of us, so we can really consider their, their merits and their costs. So technology is not some kind of magic bullet that's just going to save us. In mainstream economics, there's this idea that technology is this kind of neutral thing. It's outside of a production function. You introduce it into the production function and that will you know, just be good for everybody. What you're saying is that no, actually technology, as you said, is, is embedded in relations of power. So we need to understand who it's for, what it's for, and how much it's going to cost, and whether or not it even does the thing that they say it's, it's going to do. So I think that's a, that's a very important point. What makes me kind of curious, though, is that, you know, right now you're situated in Tunisia, my students are in Pakistan, we're in the global south, and yet you're writing a book about the U.S. Green New Deal and these kinds of debates about uh, eco-modernism that are going on over there. Why is it important for us in the global south to know what it is and to have our own critique, right? I, usually it's like people from the West, the IMF and World Bank will come to Pakistan, they'll tell us what to do. The FAO, you mentioned the Food and Agriculture Organization or UNICEF is going to come to Tunisia and be like, hey, here's some uh, you know, chlorine tablets you need to put in your water. But this is kind of the opposite. It's like us from the global south need to be looking at, at their development. So what's going on there? So one of the one of the central issues, which cannot be overemphasized, right, is that this discourse of the Green New Deal is so far more or less successfully displacing or replacing and silencing an older environmental discussion, which linked the global south and the global north, and where one of the absolute central demands is what's called climate debt. Um, and climate debt is essentially the idea that based on the history of colonialism and imperialism and also uh, using all this atmospheric space, the North owes the South a huge debt. Uh, and I'll go more into this later. But now that, that demand was very important for the, what was called the global environmental justice movement. 
Now, most of the people talking about a Green New Deal now in the US aren't talking about that. That's part of the problem. Perhaps an even bigger problem is that now there's this idea that um, the global South should be developing its own Green New Deals. Um, and because of the way uh, knowledge is uh, constructed by power and uh, programmatic interventions or policies are kind of pushed upon the global south, there is a way in which uh, this northern idea of a Green New Deal could move to the global south and with it, it could also lead to the erasure of this traditional global south demand for climate debt. Um, and you know, there's, uh, and that could be, in fact, extremely dangerous, right? So it's actually the, the critique of the Green New Deal is also about political and intellectual self-defense against these ideas, which could be very harmful. Uh, it would be very, very harmful um, for the, the third world uh, if this idea that each country should have its own Green New Deal which by itself is not a problem, uh, displaced the idea that the North owes the South climate and ecological reparations, right? That would be uh, an absolute disaster for, uh, for the majority of humanity, right? Which needs climate reparations in order to carry out sovereign and uh, popular development. And, you know, the, the Bolivian climate negotiators in, um, I think, 2000, 2012, or maybe 2010, demanded that 6% uh, of the wealthy world uh, GDP go towards climate reparations every single year, right? And so if, you, if wealthy world uh, GDP is around $40 trillion, that would mean $2.4 trillion of reparations, not you know, development aid, not loans, um, nothing like this. Reparations, like grants, like money, resources given from the North to the South every single year, right? This would be uh, a huge change. And so that demand should be on the table. And in order to get that demand on the table, I think it's very important to um, or, or to make sure it isn't removed from the table, although in some ways it isn't as present right now as it used to be, um, it's very important to develop a, a critique of even the people who in some ways are progressive or leftist or in some of their ideas are noble. And you think, okay, that's a noble idea. We it's nice that they're talking about that, but if they want to talk about, you know, uh, stopping America from seizing, uh, from stopping America from emitting so much carbon dioxide, well, this, this is good, but they have to talk about these other things too. Um, and they should talk about these other things because it's just a question of fairness. And, it, and it's a question of distribution and it's a question of everybody having uh, the same rights to justice and development um, and uh, freedom and the good life that the, the Green New Deal imagines for people in the United States. So this idea of climate debt is, I think, really important. So a country like Pakistan contributes maybe less than 1% of, uh, far less than 1% of, of greenhouse gas emissions, but we're going to face, uh, we're going to have one of the worst, we're one of the worst affected countries. 
I've got glaciers in the north and we've got sea levels rising in the south and everything in between is all kinds of climate disaster. So this idea that that uh, there are reparations owed to us because most of that climate change has been caused by the the global north, I think is a, is an in, intriguing one. Uh, I think there's another aspect of it that you talk about in your work as well, which has to do with these kinds of technologies of uh, climate mitigation that are based on things like lithium batteries or the the smartphones that we use and the the laptops that we use that have coltan or cobalt in them there's also a really important question of where those resources are coming from and how they're being extracted and how how they're being uh, used maybe you can tell us a little bit about that yeah so uh to start um i want to give a little a little very short uh history lesson what's interesting is this is a critique that comes from the South, purely and 100%. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's not something that ever that was born in the North. So this critique basically um, starts from this idea that if you, if you go back to the history of international trade uh, in, in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, something um, Latin American economists noticed was that their countries were exporting raw materials and importing manufactured goods, right? So what they, what they then saw was that as the years went on, the prices for their, uh, their raw commodities, whether that was metal or whether that was coffee, we're always suffering against the prices of manufactured goods, right? And there are a variety of explanations for that, um, which are, are very technical, um, uneven exchange, um, and so forth. But what, what, what is essential is that this hypothesis, this theory um, uh, the, called the declining terms of trade, um, uh, was, was very well uh, validated empirically. Right. And what, what they realized was that this was a structural aspect of the world economy. And it was a structural aspect of the world economy, which made it so that wealth concentrated in one portion of the world and poverty concentrated in another portion of the world. In the 1960s and 1970s, across the entire third world, even in a very, very, very um, neo-colonial country totally allied with the U.S. like Tunisia. Um, people were talking about the fact that you needed one way or another to change the terms of trade. Um, and there was a lot of talk about what they called uh, commodity cartels. In other words, then people would come together and figure out ways to demand just prices on world markets for their primary commodities, right? And this, this insight uh, from the Global South was then uh, broadened in many ways um, more recently, uh, starting in, in the late 1990s and uh, the 2000s. And it was realized, something else was realized too, it was realized that the structure of the world trading system, including the price system, right? Because the price, 
you know, price is where uh, the buyer and the seller meet under the idea or the, the conceit or uh, the supposition or, or what have you, that they are exchanging goods of equal value, right? You know, you, um, the price says, okay, you know, I'm going to pay this amount for that. And I, or I received a certain amount. I received that amount of currency for my goods and price makes it seem like there's an exchange of equivalents. Um, what these researchers started to figure out and make clear is that there was price was actually the mechanism for the exchange of non-equivalents. In other words, price was this kind of um, magical computer, magical kind of accounting device, which meant that not only uh, did the North get richer and the South get poorer, but also uh, pollution would concentrate in the South uh, and what's called uh, development would concentrate in the North. So take uh, uh, something like uh, a cell phone, right? A cell phone um, is primarily, uh, or an iPhone, is primarily manufactured in China using a range of uh, minerals that come from all over the world, both China, but also a place like Congo, right? Um, and you can look at that supply chain, and actually it's horrifying. So if you go to the Congo, the Congo has been savagely attacked by uh, Western imperialism. Uh, both under colonialism, but also the moment they dared to uh, resist and throw out the colonizers, they, uh, you know, their leader, Patrice Lumumba, was assassinated. Uh, the country has been uh, under, uh, afflicted by Western sown wars for, for decades, because of, in large part because of its immense mineral wealth. Um, and it also has huge, huge reserves of, uh, of cobalt, for example which is mined uh, you know, under practically slave-like conditions, often by children who are paid absolutely nothing, right? So then the raw material in this case for the iPhone is only cheap because the whole country is being destroyed, right? Which is a political and historical and social fact, right? The country doesn't have to be destroyed, but if you want the cell phone to be cheap, you need its materials to be cheap. And if you need the materials to be cheap, you need the country to be destroyed. You meaning, you know, the U.S., especially Apple, which is making great profit from this process. Then the, those raw materials go to China. Now, the, you also, again, if, if cell phones need to be both cheap enough for uh, millions and millions of people to buy them in the U.S., um, but expensive enough for a huge amount of profit to go into the hands of the owners of Apple, and if you look at Apple, it's doing very, very well these days, then you need a certain way of structuring the manufacturing of iPhones, right? So you can go to China and you see that wages there have to be relatively low in order that the iPhones can be manufactured relatively cheaply. Now, China is a more complicated case in some ways because uh, there are constant wage increases going on. But the essence of the, uh, the, uh, the core of the matter is that uh, there have to be low wages in, the in the, that third world manufacturing sector in order for the iPhone to be cheap enough to come 
be cheap in the U.S. Now, what kind of um, and also, of course, all the you know all the pollution from the mining, from the manufacturing that stays in the Congo and in China. Then, in the U.S., what's done is there is called the you know the the value added uh, service sector where there's. Uh, you know, people advertise the cell phone and design the cell phone and sell the cell phone and maybe repair the cell phone, right? Um, you know, these are still skills, but if you, in a, from a certain perspective, they aren't really adding value. Um, they, they aren't adding that much value compared to actually manufacturing the product, right? And they also don't really produce pollution. Uh, so what happens is, that all these prices, right, each stage in the production process of the iPhone, a certain price is paid for a certain thing. A certain price is paid for the wage of the cobalt miner, and a certain price is paid for the cobalt, then a certain price is paid for the subcontractor um, in the manufacturing chain, then a certain price is paid for the whole iPhone itself when it comes to the US. All those prices have to be low, and all those um, all the all the money that's paid is very little, and that's the money that stays in the third world. Then other portions of the price are uh, and of the of the production chain, such as advertising, sales, design, are compensated very well. But that money stays in the first world, right? So you have a process whereby the first world concentrates this. Uh, what you could call a technology, right? A techno structure, but actually technology. This technology rests on this whole buried pyramid, you know, the subsurface iceberg of exploitation and ecological destruction. And that concentrates in the South. And what the North concentrates is the advanced technology product itself. And what we now know from a huge, uh, you know, what we now know from a huge, huge, huge range of work that started above all in the South um, and, you know, and it has also gone elsewhere and been developed elsewhere is that this is not a bug, right? This is not an error of the world economic system. This is actually a structural feature of the world economic system. And it's also, finally, it's a structural feature of these technologies, that these technologies are not neutral, but actually rest fundamentally on this entire system, this labyrinthine subterranean system of exploitation. So it takes that whole system of exploitation to produce a certain type of technology. So on this basis, we would never think of a technology as neutral. And uh, I've never felt as guilty for having an iPhone. I, I have one too. <laughs> yeah, but I think that you know, even that points to how it's difficult to escape this thing. Uh, I, I want to note I, I, the, the way you just broke this down ties in very neatly with discussions that we've had with Intan Suwandi and Utsa Patnaik recently, which is talking about the relationship between the global north and the south and these commodity chains. But I think you've laid out the violence uh, on which th they rest, uh, which comes back to this point that it's hard to escape. It's hard to escape buying things which are are based on this this kind of violence uh and so again if you want to talk about clean technology clean uh energy you have to ask who 
is 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 wiping that thing clean and then giving it to you where is the dirt actually going and how is that dirt distributed and how is the cleanliness distributed i think i think that's very important um but it's on that note that i think i want to turn then to the question of alternatives so so far you've given us a critique but you also gave started to give us a sense of an alternative in terms of smallholder agriculture and you've talked about agroecology so can you maybe define agroecology for us and tell us a little bit more about this kind of agriculture that you're talking about is it practicable is it something that everybody in the world can do all of a sudden switch from the kind of industrialized agriculture to this organic small scale agriculture that you're talking about yeah that's a great question so agroecology is the application of uh, scientific methods of research to traditional the traditional farming systems. So if you go back uh, 70 years, the overwhelming majority of farming, of agriculture on the planet was non-input intensive. um it was it was peasant agriculture and it was traditional what that meant was that it it did not rely on uh external inputs like tractors uh like fertilizers like pesticides uh it relied it was difficult it relied on manual labor and it also relied it used closed ecological cycles for the most part what that means is that the ways of farming that people used by and large had to protect the fertility of the soil you have to protect the fertility of the soil because you don't have external chemical fertilizers to give you fake fertility right so you have to make sure that the soil has all the nutrients needed for the next crop um otherwise the crop will fail and life will be come very difficult for for you and your family. So uh there were also ways of of protecting the the water the water content of the soil or gathering uh water from uh from rain which is very relevant in in uh, Pakistan and also Tunisia to have uh ways of rainwater harvesting to take another example. um or and it's also about using uh polycultures or multiple crops instead of one crop in one field so currently the the industrial agricultural model uses what's called a monoculture so you have you know a field of wheat or a barley although decreasingly barley that is uh you know 10,000 hectares uh whereas if you have a polyculture you have a relatively far far smaller wheat field and you rotate it with um some form of legume uh you uh, or you rotate it with a different cereal and you have multiple rotations over many many years and you also have next to it um some type of uh, a line of trees that produce some sort of uh, fruit i'm actually not familiar with what's grown in in uh, pakistan I, um as i should be but um 
you know, so in in, um, in Tunisia, you would have uh, cacti that produce um, uh, the the Barbary figs, abutting the the cereal fields. Traditionally, you would also be working them with uh, with animals that would uh, eat some, uh, you know, eat some of the residue after the crop, and then restore fertility to the soil with manure. Now, what was beautiful about this type of agriculture is that it's extremely resilient. It decentralizes knowledge. Um, knowledge remains in the hands of the direct producers. Um, we've already discussed how basically it protects and builds the soil. So it restores carbon, uh, carbon into the soil, pulls carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, and though, and it, it increases biodiversity. So, uh, all the, you know, the, the huge range of insects and animals that you might see in, um, in an, an, an ag agroecological plot are far, far higher than you would see in a non-agroecological plot. So for example, there, there's experiments in India using agroecological farming, and they found that the number of earthworms per square meter was uh, nine times higher in uh, the agroecological plots than in the conventionally farmed plots. And earthworms are a very important indicator and contributor to the health the soil, they aerate it, they leave behind their casings, um, and so forth. Now, uh, so the, there's fundamental merits to this type of agriculture. There's also uh, demerits from a certain perspective, right? One of the demerits is that this can be very, can be very labor intensive. Um, another partial demerit is that in some ways, this agriculture tends to yield less uh, than using fertilizers and, and uh, tractors and, uh, and herbicides. Now, in fact, this question of yield for the third world is not a real issue. Um, for the most part, in most countries of uh, the third world, using agroecological forms of production for smallholders and small medium holder farms will lead to increases in their yields. Um, part of it is because there's something called um, the, um, the pesticide treadmill and um, there are problems with uh, fertilizer no longer having much of an impact and you have to apply more and more fertilizer to achieve the same results and this is because the soil is so exhausting now so this question of yield at least theoretically is not really a problem for smallholder farms the other problem is labor right it is going to be more labor intensive now this is true there's no way around this issue now it, it, the thing is that if you look at a typical or, or basically any third world country, you have a situation of structural labor surplus um, and you have a huge amount of unemployment and very often uh, people are, of course, uh, justifiably uh, either depressed or furious at the level of unemployment. I mean, people uh, don't uh, may not remember, but the Arab Spring or such as it is, started in Tunisia from an unemployed former farmer um, who uh, was working as a street peddler, uh, a seller of small things on the street, and uh, was um, 
you know, were, were ended up um, burning himself to death. And this is after a number of other people had burnt themselves to death over that past year. And in fact, people have unemployed people, unemployed youth in Tunisia, have continued burning themselves to death over the last 10 years. Of course, no one talks about this. They want to talk about Libya or Syria or whatever, but they don't care that, you know, these economic policies are murdering people in Tunisia. Um, and they're imposed by the IMF, of course. Now, so one has to be serious about this. Um, how, how are countries in the third world supposed to escape poverty. Um, now, one idea is to do whatever the World Bank or the IMF, um, et cetera, right? What, whatever they propose, which is usually, you know, okay, we need to transition people out of the smallholder sector, we need to industrialize, we need to get people in call centers and so forth. Um, we need to, you know, move on to the Internet of Things. We need to move people to telecommunications. Um, you know, we need to focus on the beautiful merits of the informal sector and their creativity and this and that. Um, you know, and there's a new line all the time. Uh, that hasn't worked. The one third world country that has basically in some respect, successfully developed and actually had a sovereign industrialization is China. And China started out its developmental process with one of the world's most important agrarian reforms in recorded history. Um, just totally shattered the large landholding system, um, redistributed the land, put people in, in, in cooperatives, uh, primarily did not use input-intense agriculture, although it, towards the end of the, the Maoist period, there was a lot more input-intense agriculture. Using all of these uh, changes, people farming became much more productive. There was a surplus. The state could sell the surplus, actually industrialize. And um, for a long time, everyone in, uh, by the end of uh, the 70s, you know, everyone in uh, China had enough food and uh, adequate health care um, uh, ad adequate educational systems. And of course, we want uh, everyone should have more than that. But what's striking is that all of these so called ideas of development, which usually come from either first world economists and politicians, or are uh, and are then kind of transmitted to the South, these have not delivered development, right? Most, a uh, huge number of people in the South, maybe a billion, are. Uh, go to bed hungry every day, uh, housing is totally inadequate, and so forth. So the idea is that a full-scale shift to agroecology in the South, um, which is proven uh, by historical experience over the last 30 years, and there's a huge literature that shows that yield increases, that the soil gets healthier, um, that on-farm profits increase for smallholders, and so forth. Uh, it's clear that it works, that this can allow third world countries to accumulate the surplus needed uh, to actually carry out real popular national development. Um, and the agricultural sector is absolutely central to that, but it has to be central in this specific way not a way that's based on uh, large farms.
So that's really interesting that you raised China because in Pakistan, the Prime Minister Imran Khan uh, explicitly says that we need to look to China for our development, but often it's restricted to what China's done in the last 30 years. And what you're pointing to in terms of agrarian reform, uh, which is uh, at least very importantly based on taking land away from these big landlords, and we have plenty of large landlords in Pakistan, taking their land away, redistributing it to smaller plots so that more people can have access to land, and then supporting it with other agrarian uh, policies so that people can turn these profits, people can, uh, so that the labor, the great labor surplus that exists in Pakistan or a country like Pakistan, and I'm guessing in Tunisia, as you described also, can then be absorbed in, in agriculture. Yet at the same time, you pointed to the fact that China industrialized and that means there's manufacturing, that means that you move away from an agricultural sector towards factories uh, and, and now of course China is the workshop of the world. They, they make our iPhones. Uh, in Pakistan, the cars are coming from China, computers, uh, phones, uh, fridges, washing machines. I bought a washing machine in, and it was made by Hire which is a, uh, an important Chinese company. So, you know, what, is that not off the table then for, for Pakistan, for Tunisia, um, in your view? No, no, not at all. I, I, think that, uh, I think that countries should, or countries or groups of countries, need to have their own industrial sector. Uh, I think that that's fundamental. And so a, a lot of times people might take what I'm proposing and be like, okay, so you want us, is this like the hobbits and the Lord of the Rings and you want us to go live in, in grassy villages uh, and just kind of eat mushrooms and apples and pomegranates um, and, and roll around in carts? No. Um, although this would be better than the current situation in Yemen. I always want to remind people, right? Um, but uh, no, no, no. It's... Uh, you know, so part of what China did, right? China used the surplus from agriculture in order to uh, industrialize, which meant feeding the workers in cities uh, food because they're not growing their own food anymore. And at the same time, uh, selling some of what is produced in order to import industrial goods because you need a heavy industrial goods sector, of course, to, to industrialize. Um, and of course, to use that surplus to do things like support universities, right? To support uh, national knowledge production and uh, to produce uh, a native technological intellectual base for popular development, right? So I mean, Pakistan is a huge country and with the appropriate policies, there's no question that Pakistan is theoretically capable uh, of carrying out a policy like that. Um, well, the specifics of it, I don't really know because um, I'm just beyond far from a Pakistan expert. But like, I know very, you know, it's very clear that Pakistan is a huge country with, with fertile soil, um, you know, uh, a lot of knowledge, a lot of actually, you know, substantial universities and so forth. There's no question that Pakistan could be producing uh, its own industrial goods and with knowledge of the entire production chain, right? With So that it's not just uh, assembling uh, things that are primarily manufactured elsewhere. So it's not like an assembly plant. So it's actually 
using, so it's actually manufacturing and having control over the entire production chain. There's no reason Pakistan can't do that. There's no historical reason. There's no theoretical reason. I mean, Pakistan has a huge internal market, right? Especially uh, if rural poor people and pastoralists and slum dwellers are not poor anymore, if they have a lot more resources, then you have a huge internal market for the, the new Pakistani uh, industries to sell their stuff to um, or to or however the, however goods are allocated, right? Which doesn't have to be under, on capitalist terms. Um, so this is part of what the agri- agrarian reform is about creating an internal market. Um, and, and even, uh, you know, the, the great uh, Egyptian economist Samir Amin used to say that even in a situation of one million people, you could theoretically carry out this form of uh, independent uh, development or independent and self-reliant and auto-centered development. Now, I don't know about a million people. Um, this seems uh, to imply a great deal of difficulties. But in a country like Pakistan or Tunisia, or especially Tunisia in liaison with with, um, with uh, Algeria and Morocco, which was the traditional demand of the uh, Tunisian nationalists, the Tunisian left-wing nationalists, the developmentalists, everybody agreed that Tunisia should be part of a confederation across, with its neighbors uh, across North Africa. So this was the basis for Tunisian economic development. So again, all of these ideas are certainly feasible. The problem is that they're made very difficult, both by internal blockages. For example, farmer, large farmers don't want to give up their land. Whoever is importing, uh, you know the Chinese, uh, the Chinese um, dishwashers, and so forth. They have a monopoly on that, so they are also a blockage to it. Um, you know, to some extent, China will be a blockage to it. And of course, if any country actually carries out a very radical agrarian reform, the main antagonist to that process will be America, right? Um, and so this is why it's very important, also, that a Green New Deal understand that if a Green New Deal is also supposed to imply just development for the entire planet, you have to remember that America is an empire and it doesn't want just development for the entire planet. So this is a really important point that you're making about the the political obstacles that you're mentioning uh, to agrarian reform are extremely important. They've they've played a a serious role in blocking uh, Pakistan's development, according to many scholars. So it's not just Marxists or, or radical leftists who say this, but even, you know, very uh, kind of middle-of-the-road centrists will say, we need land reforms in, in Pakistan, in a country like Pakistan. But maybe as as a way to conclude and to bring it back to some of the things that we were discussing, uh, one of the things I often ask, and I, I would like to ask you as well, is what would you say to students in the Global South, to students in Pakistan, considering some of the similarities between Tunisia and, and, and Pakistan, but also the the particularities and the differences. What kind of approach uh, do you think students need to bring to be able to tackle these questions of climate change, these questions of agrarian uh, reform and industrialization and, and just development, sovereign national development that you've been talking about? I think a huge problem is that people aren't going back to the the national intellectual traditions often enough. Um, and, and, and there can be, 
uh, an overinterest or reliance on external knowledge. And I, I, by that, I very far from, you know, I'm not Tunisian, but, and so I don't mean to be nativist about what people sh should or shouldn't read. But if I want to understand Tunisia, um, I want to, you, you have to read the people who lived in the place and brought a critical, uh, albeit Marxist, albeit national populist, albeit a popular ecological lens to what was going on in that country. Um, of course, um, you know, up to in the older period, of course, in the post-independence period, but even up to the 80s, I mean, across the entire third world, right? There were very rich, uh, heterodox, third world, nationalist, uh, Marxist traditions, right? Um, that reflected uh, what was going on in each country, that uh, there were debates within them, um, and um, reflected, uh, reflected different ways people thought, different ways people thought about and approached this question of how to carry out development. Um, I would be quite sure that there was uh, some form of kind of a dependency uh, approach, even if not called explicitly that for, for Pakistan in the 80s. And I would think also that there were people thinking about auto-centered development um, in Pakistan. Uh, there's uh, actually, uh, well, there was a journal called the International Forum for uh, Alternative Development, um, which is available online. Um, and there were many contributors from Pakistan. It ran from 1979 to 1991 and had contributors from across the third world, including uh, very much so Pakistan. So I think going back to that and thinking, okay, this is people, people, this is the basis upon which people were trying to understand what was going on then and how can we think about how this analysis continues to apply to the world now and how can we build on it? Right, not just to leave it uh, be and say that's the final word, but to say that this was a hugely important conversation and how can we recover and go beyond that, right? While, first of all, uh, while keeping an eye on agriculture and climate and these fundamental issues that um, they really put, these fundamental approaches that really do put agriculture front and center when it comes to third world development. Because, you know, for a lot of people, it's not trendy or, you know, they think they'll get made fun of or like, you know, people are like, oh, you know, you, you say you're interested in agriculture and that's backwards or this or that, you know, these kind of um, ways of demeaning or insulting. But like, how, how are countries of the South supposed to develop except based on using the resources available in the country, which means, you know, the wealth of the land and making sure that the wealth stays as much as possible in the country. I don't think it's common sense, but I think it needs to be common sense. And I do think it, it's it's rational and logical and a just way to go about things. And I really hope more and more, as you're seeing in a lot of places, you know, students go back to it and think, uh, especially and go back to thinking about the countryside as a source of wealth and a place for dignified life and think, okay, how can that be the basis for uh, walking into a better future?